Get ready, it's time. Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck, is the most powerful voice in women's issues today. As the owner of Motherhood Incorporated, Sandra brings you inspiring, influential, and interesting resources to help you navigate everything from childcare to corporate formation. Each episode of Motherhood Talk Radio features guests who all have a story, experts in their field, and information you won't want to miss. We bring you everything from the latest crafting tips to how to be sexy in your 40s. From great parenting tips to moms facing some tough challenges, and most importantly, how to bounce back with style. Motherhood Talk Radio helps you make a difference in your world and the world around us. Being all you can be starts right here, right now. Let's do it. Here's your host, Sandra Beck. Hey, everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm really excited today to talk to Dr. Moses. We're going to talk about the opioid crisis that's happening in our nation. And I think this is a really good thing because Dr. Moses is a psychiatrist and he's been practicing different types of therapies for over 50 years and he's really good at this stuff. And I really need someone to explain to me and our listeners, you know, what's going on, especially because the just the vaping at my kids' high school, um, Dr. Moses, is crazy. It's like one in four or two in four, you know, depending on how you want to look at the statistics for the school. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know what vaping was. I had to look it up online when my kids came home and they were talking about it. And um, there's so much, doctor, that parents don't know today. Well, I think that's not unusual. I don't think parents know all that much since I started practicing 50 years ago. Well, that's good to hear because I'm a first-time parent, so I don't know. Well, there's a lot to learn in being a parent. <laughs> uh, that's why uh, Dr. Wendy Morse and I wrote that book that uh, we spoke about the first time, uh, Raising our Self-Confident Independent Kids, uh, because there is so much to learn, and a lot of people don't have uh, mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and aunts and, to teach them about uh, the best ideas in raising children. So sure. it's, uh, Right, or even to know what's typical. You know, like my, my when my first kid got into eighth grade, I couldn't believe he was the same child. And then when my second child entered eighth grade, I'm like, huh, been there, done that, seen this before. And my dad is living with us now, so our household goes from... Now it's, it used to be eight to 80. Now it's like, you know, 13 to 86, but it's amazing when you have different generations in the household, how they can say, yeah, this is pretty typical. Yeah, that's what they do. Oh, he doesn't want to cut his hair. You know, don't bug him unless, you know, it's dirty, leave him alone. So, you know, my dad helped a lot with those things, just even just some of the simple behaviors of, you know, growing up and identifying who you are. Um. Sandra, where's Dr. Spock now that we need him? I know. In my day, all the mothers read Dr. Spock only to learn that what the kids were going through was relatively normal. Yeah. And that's not that he necessarily had the right answer to everything, but he did let mothers know not to worry so much over the child's 
change in personalities over the years. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's why there's so many helicopter moms today? I mean, I have this one mom, this is going to sound super crazy, but you know, we have a whole hour. So um, I'm just going to share this with you. You know, those little Alexa devices, they look like hockey pucks that you plug into the wall. She yes. one in each of her kids' rooms and they're, you know, young teeny teens and they're good kids, you know, as far as we know, you know, good grades, play on the sports teams, you know, no, no trouble, at least visible. And she can listen in their rooms using their that device like eavesdrop on them and i you know i have a couple alexas i got one in my kitchen one in my bedroom and you know one in the family room and you know we use it you know to do grocery list set things but when i found out you could eavesdrop on your family members and she goes oh yeah she goes now i know everything that's going on in my kids lives she goes i just turn it on and when i'm doing the dishes and they're talking to their friends she goes i just listen in and i I had a really hard time with that. Because it's a very bad thing to do for children. You're teaching them two things. You're teaching them mom is a spy and she doesn't trust you. And therefore I'm not trustworthy. And therefore when I go off to college and there's no gadget in my room, then I could bust loose. And I've seen that many times where these our children who are goody two shoes are all through high school end up uh, becoming heavy drinkers and promiscuous when they get to college. So I think that this mother is not doing her children any favor by trying to protect them. The uh, most important thing that a mother and father have got to learn is raising children creates anxiety. And if you're not willing to have that anxiety, you really shouldn't have children because you can do them a lot more harm than good. So I think that, I think that, uh, you know, we're talking about something that actually leads into what this whole discussion is about, and that is the opiate crisis, because what you're talking about, when children are not prepared to be individuals, when they're not prepared to be confident in themselves, when they're not prepared to know that they can go um, out into the world and be relatively successful, uh, that's when they begin to look for some kind of anxiety-relieving medication, and probably the most uh, the most powerful of all the anxiety medications are opiates. Okay, so, I don't know what opiates uh, are. So you have to take a step back and explain to me. I'm, you know, I barely take an aspirin for a headache. So you'll have to educate me on. I don't even know what an opiate is. Is it a prescription drug? Uh, well, some are. Oxycontin, okay. oxycodone, a prescription. Uh, there's a whole bunch that are prescription. There's. Uh, the cough syrup, which contains codeine. There's uh, methadone, which is used as a heroin substitute. There's dilaudid, which is used as a pain reliever. There's Demerol for the same reason, Percocets, uh, all of those. And then we have fentanyl, which is for severe chronic pain. Those are all, uh, you know, opiates. An opiate is a drug that is derived from the uh, opium poppy uh, grown heavily in Afghanistan. And his profits very often go to supporting the, the terrorists. Wow. So there's a, there's a double disadvantage. But I wanted to get back to one thing for a second, Sandra. Just uh, why uh, are we talking about the demand? Because every time you turn on the television set, you hear more and more about how the supply of opiates is causing the problem. Well, any businessman knows that if there's no demand, right. there's no need for supply. 
And in my years, that if there's not a, an availability of one drug, they'll find some other drug to use, those who are destined to become heavy drug users. And so I think that what we really have to address in the course of things, both on the television and uh, on the radio and in the newspapers, is not how naughty the, uh, the pharmaceutical companies are for uh, turning these drugs out, but rather why is there a demand that makes it profitable for the pharmaceutical companies to turn out the oxycontins and the oxycodones, which are now the two drugs of choice, along with fentanyl. Uh, for the uh, addicted market. And we're not talking now about the, um, the uh, people who become addicted secondarily to pain uh, prescriptions. Uh, the, 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 they're talking about the street addict who seeks out the drug in order to alleviate uh, his own uh, emotional pain, not physical pain. Um, and many of the people who become addicted who uh, prescribe the drugs it's not that difficult to get them off it because they do not have the basic underlying personality that requires the drug. Gotcha. Uh, let me let me uh, continue for a minute, and that is drugs, opiates, all other drugs are not a disease; they're a symptom, and it's a symptom of an underlying disease. And if that underlying disease, um, it's an emotional disease; it's a very severe emotional disease. And if that emotional disease is not addressed, then the uh, desire for the drug remains uh, extremely strong, even after they're detoxified. So, I mean, we're talking now about uh, something that people should be aware of, that there's a reason why these kids are using drugs, and adults do, why they're using drugs, and above all, why they're using opiates. Does that include, like, like alcohol and beer and marijuana and things like that? To excess, anything to excess. I cannot say that that alcohol in a college student is a pathological uh, action. Sure. Uh, and in in my day, every college had a drinking song. Notre sure. Dame's was most famous. Maine's was most famous, made famous by Rudy Valley. So, I mean, these, these colleges actually uh, praise their drinking. And if you saw the old movie, The Student Prince, that also has a lot, has a standard drinking song that, uh, was was sung uh, not only on the movie but on the stage. So I mean, the use of alcohol in college go together. It's the excess. It's who's master. Gotcha. Is the is the individual the master of the drug, or is the drug the master of the individual? And uh, once the drug becomes the master of the individual, that's when you have real problems. That makes sense. Okay, so once the master oh. is not you but something else, whether it's, you know, alcohol or drugs or any number of things, that's when it becomes the problem. I once motivated a young woman uh, to get off, uh, to go into treatment for her heroin use. She was perfectly happy to use heroin. And the reason why she was using heroin is really too long to express, but it has a lot to do with the loss of her academic ability following a car accident. But uh, she was totally unmotivated to get off the heroin. And I said to her, you hate authority. You have an overbearing parent. You have overbearing parents. You can't stand them. You're rebelling against them. And yet you've turned your authority over to uh, a, a, a drug pusher and a drug. You want to do what you like to do. And yet the authority of the drug says you have to drive into Brooklyn to score. 
So, I mean, once she heard that, she said, you know, you're right, that I am no longer master. I have now succumbed to another authority, and it motivated her to get into therapy and to get off the drug. Nice. But I, th I think that it is a, uh, it's a situation where once you can deal with an underlying feelings, usually of inadequacy, anxiety, depression, uh, then you can get, they can uh, lessen their desire for the medication. And from here on in, I'm going to refer to the opiates as medication. So people know exactly what I'm talking about. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, because I think it's 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 hard for for me to understand um, you know, something I've never experienced, but I know that I need to be aware of this as a parent and you know, as somebody who works a lot with kids. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I also want to go and uh, spend a minute to define what addiction is. A lot of things which we call addiction is not addiction. It's become a common parlance, and uh, therefore there's a mistake in uh, what we're dealing with. Addiction is a cellular requirement for the drug and requires ever-increasing amounts for the desired results. There's also a very severe distress on withdrawal. As we know, with heroin, it's cold turkey. With alcohol, it's the DTs. And uh, with the barbiturates, it can lead to convulsions and even death just on the withdrawal. Uh, the, those are the, the addictive drugs, which include alcohol, nicotine, Valium, Xanax, barbiturates, and the opiates, plus several others, which, you know, don't have to go into right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so how do people afford this? You know, some of these drugs that you mentioned, you know, they're pretty pricey. Are they... You know, and you say that they're, you know, like, especially if they're like a high school person or a young person, you know, how do they fund this, this habit? Well, unfortunately, there are three ways of stealing, very often from parents, and the parents are very hesitant to lock up their, uh, their valuables because they don't want to think of their child as being a thief. It's a tough thing to think about. Uh, there's... Uh, Stealing from others, robbing stores and places like that. That's uh, one. Dealing, selling the drug. Uh, by the way, it's dealing, not pushing. Uh, every heroin dealer I've ever dealt with never had to push anything. They all come knocking at his door uh, desperately. So uh, there's pushing where you uh, sell, you buy in quantity and you sell retail. And uh, there's also prostitution. A lot of girls, uh, young girls, as young as 13 or 14, who do get addicted even that young, unfortunately, uh, all the way up uh, fund their, uh, their drug habit either by actual prostitution or having sex with a dealer. So those are the three most common ways of obtaining money. Some people are just that wealthy. I had one uh, man in therapy, this is not an addictive drug, but he funded a $100,000 a year cocaine habit, which was just that wealthy. You didn't have to do anything illegal. Gotcha. So, but I think, I think that uh, that's an important question that you ask, because I think parents, uh, if you suspect your child is on uh, an opiate especially, and let's talk about that particular 
uh, meditation, um, you have to look for the signs, drowsiness, uh, uh, pin, pinpoint pupils. There's the expression is your eyes are pinned. Uh, and at night, especially when it's dark uh, or dim, and you can see the eyes, and they're extremely, uh, the pupils are extremely small, like in broad daylight, you'd be pretty sure that your child is using an opiate. Um, and if that is the case, whether you like it or not, lock up your valuables. Gotcha. Do you see behavior changes? Like you said, sleepy, you know, but do there, there there are apathy, apathy uh, is a big one. Uh, the the uh, dropping out of school, truancy. Uh, this we're talking about the school uh, addict. Uh, the grown addict that usually doesn't have a job uh, can function very well. Uh, you know, most parents have raised children from infancy, uh, vast majority. And if you recall, as a parent, when your child was still in your arms, your baby was still in your arms, you went through uh, certain periods uh, during the day. The baby is hungry, screams, he yells. If you're not there quickly, there's a certain anger and rage that you could see in the infant. And this is the, uh, you know, th this is the, um, the addict before he gets his drug. Then you stick uh, the food into the baby's mouth, either a bottle or breastfeed, and the baby suddenly calms down and is nursing. And is feeling pretty good, calm and relaxed and everything. And a few minutes later, the baby goes off to sleep. Well, this is the exact uh, situation that the heroin addict goes through. As a matter of fact, when I started in this uh, business back in the 60s, 61, 62, uh, heroin was called milk, the dealer was called mother, and the room that they shot up in was called the crib. Wow. If that doesn't tell you what they're doing, nothing does. And it's really that same sense of total relaxation going on the nod, which is the street expression. Um, that uh, the addict looks for. Oh. So, where? So, what starts an addict? Do they are they born with a predisposition, and you know, certain life circumstances help create this? Is it one wrong choice? Like, what what leads someone to to lose control over their life to a substance? I think mostly it's what I said before is uh, the severe anxiety and the feeling of difficulty in dealing with everyday stress. Um, the the idea that uh, stress is something that they cannot overcome. Uh, and, uh, you and I both know that adulthood and even teenagers, especially, is not a stress-free time of life. No, I had one. I had one young woman come in. I had a laugh at this. She said, "Oh." This is the most stressful time in history. I said, yes, almost as stressful as the Holocaust, World War II, <laughs> Vietnam era, civil rights, when people, when uh, African-Americans were being lynched, uh, the Civil War when 600,000 Americans were killed. Uh, yeah, this is pretty stressful compared to those times. But what she was saying is that she herself was having a great deal of difficulty dealing with today's stress. And this is something I really want to emphasize. Yeah. The constant pressure for a child to achieve academically and go on to college and do well in college 
and then go on to graduate school and then go out and get a good job uh, is a uh, is something that you'll hear all the time from parents, from peers, from teachers, from television, from everything. Uh, and that kind of pressure, which is an internal pressure for certain children who are not academic or have a learning disability, which uh, I never call a learning disability, I call it a teaching disability, because a lot of these people with learning disabilities are extremely intelligent. <coughs> Excuse me. But if uh, the learning disability isn't caught early, uh, then the anxiety and the fear of failure, because where is the first place we learn to fail? In school. Sure. Uh, very little failure takes place prior to the school years. And then you're suddenly confronted uh, with this idea, oh my God, I can't do it. So I have a personal gripe against the way the schools are run in terms of creating anxiety in the children. Uh, I have a graduate degree in medicine, obviously, and years after that of study. And in college, to be perfectly honest, I failed French, which now means I cannot treat any French-speaking people in my practice. But that doesn't hinder me from speaking all the English, treating all the English-speaking people in my practice. I didn't need French. I didn't need math. I didn't need uh, most of the subjects I, I took. I didn't need history. Uh, but that doesn't mean I don't like these subjects, and, I didn't, and I'm glad I learned them. But none of them were necessary to earn a decent living. Right. And what we tell the kids is, if you're not good in five subjects now, you won't get into a good college. And if you're not good in five subjects in college, you're not going to get into a good graduate school. That's a lot of pressure for youngsters who are not academically uh, gifted. So do you think it's also a function that we're not teaching our kids to be resilient? Do you think that there's a component of society? like? And I say this because I see a lot of my friends and sometimes family members not wanting their kids to struggle, you know, jump in and help with homework, jump in and give them the math app before they've even had a chance to see if they could do it in the first place. Um, do you think that we haven't done a good job also in teaching our kids resilience? We have done a very poor job in teaching our kids resilience. I, uh, there was a book, somebody uh, wrote a book, I don't know who it was, but it, uh, the theme was basically, somehow we survived was talking about my generation with no seatbelts, no helmets, none of that. I've skied for years. I never wore a helmet. I rode a bike doing some very uh, dangerous things, going very speeding up to the clock at 40 miles an hour. No helmet. We survived. And I think that uh, somehow we learned we will survive. The, the parents who step in and help their children prematurely before the child asks for help, because, of course, the child is really stuck and not stuck because he refuses to struggle. Uh, it's, it, it is totally detrimental to the child's uh, self-confidence. I can't do it. Mommy and Daddy think I can't do it. I can't do it. And I, I think that uh, the overprotection of the youngsters today is one of the leading causes of the opioid abuse. Well, and don't you think it goes deeper than that, like, or bigger than that? Like, when I, when one of my kids was running for some, I don't know, sergeant in arms or something for the school, he was like in fifth or sixth grade. And um, 
we had to make these posters. And the, the thing that came home from the school was really specific, Dr. Moses said, you know, the child is supposed to make the poster. So I said, all right, you're going to make the poster. I'll, I'll get you some supplies, you know, markers, stickers, and, and a board, but you know, the rest is up to you. And so he worked really hard on this and we had to hang them along the wall at school in the elementary school. Everybody had a spot with a tape and their name on it. And that's where you put your poster. And when I got in there, I felt like the worst parent ever because parents had clearly taken the, you know, taken it to Kinko's, got it professionally printed. You know, one kid was handing out pencils with his name printed on it. You know, and I felt really bad because my kid was like, you know, wow, mom, I'm not even going to put my poster up. It sucks. And in comparison, it did, you know, but we followed the instructions, you know, other parents didn't. And the kid who won was the one who had the pre-printed pencils and a giant picture of her head blown up on this Kinko's board. You know, the thing was probably $50 and, you know, the school didn't do anything. The parents didn't do anything. And I'm like, what was the point of following the directions? You know, because I, you taught your child that you have confidence that he can do it. You did the right thing simply because all the other parents did the wrong thing. Uh, I have a lot of people who are very individualistic in therapy with me. They they don't fit in because they're very bright and uh, they have a sort of uh, dark sense of humor. And they're interested in more intellectual things than in gossip. And they say, I feel because I am the way I am that there's something wrong with me. I said, yes, you're like the person who had no blisters in the 11th century when everybody else had these wonderful blisters of the Black Plague. You were in the minority and you thought that you were sick because you were in the minority? No. The people in the minority are not always the sick ones. So I think, I know, well, I'm not going to say I think, I know you did the right thing for your son. Well, and it's the school's fault for giving a uh, an award to somebody who obviously didn't use her own um, wherewithal to, uh, to make her poster. Right. It's the same thing as plagiarism or anything else like that. We condemn plagiarism, but this goes along the same line as plagiarism. Well, and and it, 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 you don't it, have to go to your parents. Like that was the thing that I, I saw. It's like, you know, that parent got so involved as if this was, a, you know, like that this child's success or failure was a reflection of her. You know, the mother was walking around with, you know, and she clearly, this was as, as much about her as it was about her kid's win. And, you know, that's the, that's the thing I just wanted to ask you, you know, if you're a parent and your success or failure as a parent is dependent on how well your kid performs in society. That's kind of what I see with some of these, you know, kind of helicopter moms or these moms, you know, yeah, there's some anxiety ones, but there are some that are like, you have to excel kid because I need to look good. Oh, there's a lot of that going around. And uh, it really is about the worst thing you could do for a child. Most parents in this day and age do not raise it. Not, I, I'm sorry. Many parents, not most. Right, right. Most kids grow up okay. But I should say most parents who have children who uh, don't really make it that well uh, are often the ones who may, uh, put a lot of their sense of success uh, on the success of the child. And I think that this is a problem of lack of self-esteem in, in, on the part of the parent. Well, and, you know, and the I, other thing that I see 
Dr. Moses with, and the reason I'm talking about this and I want to just plant some ideas is I really want the listeners to go, okay, if my kid doesn't do well, you know, how do I react? Is it about me, my feelings or about, you know, doing what's best for my kid. And I have a really good friend who's a Stanford graduate of this and a Harvard graduate of that and a, you know, PhD with a bunch of alphabet soups and she's got a bunch of degrees and, you know, she's got one child and he struggles. And the fact that he doesn't get awards and he doesn't get the things the other kids do drives her insane. Now this kid is happy most of the time. He lived with me for three months and, you know, he's, he's, He's okay with it more than she is. And that's, that's what I think can also cause a kid to have that deep-seated pain of not being good enough. You know, uh, I always joke about one thing. All these parents want their children to end up with all these degrees uh, and all of this uh, sense of academic success. Um, but the one recession-proof career a person can go into is plumbing. Yeah. As a doctor, many of my patients, many people have called me up and saying, Doc, what insurance do you take? I say, I don't take insurance. I have a sliding scale. Uh, and they say, oh, no, I'm going to go to somebody with my insurance. Uh, so they're, even in medicine now, doctors are being uh, shortchanged by the insurance companies. Right, uh, lawyers, you don't necessarily need a lawyer. You don't even need an electrician. You could throw the circuit breaker. But your toilet overflows or your pipe leaks, I don't care how little money you have, you're calling a plumber. Right. And that, I, I, I have a small sailboat, a 23-footer, and it was parked uh, next to a huge, about 60-foot boat. And who owned that boat? Macaron Plumbing and Heating. <laughs> yeah but you know so I, a lot of good, perception. Uh, if i if i need to feel good about myself because my daughter's a cheerleader or my son's a basketball player you know and i because i see a lot of these parents who are so enamored by their kids success and you know we want our kids to be the best in whatever they want to be if they want to be the best like it you know but it's more about the parent most of the time than about the kid. And that's when the child, now getting back to why there's so much opiate yeah. abuse, so many people medicating themselves with opium, is because of the, exactly what we're talking about, that these youngsters do not have a sense of success. Uh, I, I treat so many people who are highly successful in areas of which their parents did not approve who feel like failures, simply because they're not living up to what their parents wanted. It sinks in, whether the parent thinks so or not, no matter how rebellious a child may be. Mommy and daddy's idea of success and importance uh, is something that sticks with them throughout their life. Right. Um, I'm talking about people in their 50s and 60s who are still worried about what did mom and dad think about what I'm doing. And these are successful people. These are not people who are failures. They're very successful in areas that are antithetical to what their parents wanted. Right. And, uh, and I think that one of the things that leads to a lot of this uh, addiction is the idea that, uh-oh, I'm not good enough. Uh-oh, I'm not good enough. Let me do something to relieve my anxiety. And 
where, where does it, where does the opiate come from? Well, everybody's heard of it. You know, they hear, oh, hey, you got some Percocets. Hey, you got some Oxys. Uh, and somebody in the school or somebody in the neighborhood is going to have them. It's, it's not that they necessarily are being introduced to it by a, a dealer, but they they actually seek out dealers. Or, ironically enough, a lot of the Valium uh, addiction, a lot of the other addictions, Xanax addictions, uh, start off in parents' medicine chests. There are an awful lot of youngsters who become addicted right in the house. Wow. Well, well, that makes sense. You know, it's like, you know, what you see, if you see mom's reasoning or mom's way to de-stress as a glass of wine or, you know, whatever, or to eat or to work out. I mean, you, you know, kids model after a lot after what they see also. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They, they do. And not only that, we are a totally drug oriented society. Uh, you have anxiety, take this. You have uh if you have social phobia, take uh, Paxil. If you have anxiety, take Xanax. If you have, and the doctors go along with this, uh, rather than just saying, deal with it. Uh, when my young patients come in and say, doc, what am I going to do about that? I say, deal with it. They didn't have uh, opiates on Iwo Jima or, or Normandy Beach heads. And well, somehow those in. people, men, pardon? Go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead and finish. And, and I said that they had a deal with being shot at, which is a lot more anxiety-provoking than what you're going through. Deal with it. And yeah, very few people say that. Because you have you have this instant gratification. You know, I do a lot of contract work. And right now I'm doing a contract for the VA for some coaching. And we're using faxes. And they're mailing a check. And they're doing things. And it's going to take like a month for this thing to get, to get you know, nailed down. And it's interesting to me in an era of immediacy. You know, in, in other industries, when I do a tech contract, I have the, the, the contract emailed to me, I docu-sign, it goes back, the money's deposited in my account, either the day or if it's late, it's the next day. And so when you live in that society, which a lot of our teens live in that instant, you know, there's no drive into the, 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 the movie store to pick up a movie to rent, and then you got to return it tomorrow. Um, you know, you just go to Vudu and download it, and it's instantly there we don't develop the skills of patience of waiting or like the biggest one I see out here in Southern California, especially in the summer. I really love one of our soccer coaches because he's like, look kids, if you have a headache, you don't go immediately for medicine. Find out if you need some water, find out if you need to eat, see if you slept enough last night. And like, I remember him telling these kids like, look, there's a couple, there's a reason you have a headache. Let's figure out the reason. Don't just take a, you know, a medicine and just to make it go away as fast as you can. But we don't live in What an inconsiderate coach making people, making the kids suffer a little longer. (laughs) And what you're talking about, some of these mothers, the kid grew and someone says, mommy, I have this headache. She says, oh, here's some drugs. Take an aspirin. Take two aspirin. Take this, take that. Uh, Totally contradicting the... uh, the, the coach's uh, recognition of the need for a little patience and a little suffering and to deal with something without popping a pill in your mouth. Well, 
or maybe to make a course correction in your life. You know, make sure you hydrate before practice. There's a concept when it's 100 degrees out. You know, there's, there's so many things like this that in our instant, we don't even have a chance to think about what's going on. No, and you're, you're absolutely right about this need for instant gratification, which leads to the uh, instant use of a painkiller, emotional painkiller, physical painkiller. Uh, but we're talking about emotional painkillers today, uh, in order to alleviate whatever stress you're feeling. That's but, you know, right. let's it's, talk uh, about, let's make that same connection. You know, you've got, you know, we're talking about an emotional painkiller. You know, when when I was little and we had emotional problems, my mom would say, get out, run around the house, <laughs> stop killing each other. And, you know, or she would say, go paint a picture, go, you know, go write in your, your diary, you know, go. There were, were things that we had to do to process or to work with our emotional pain. I don't, I don't know if, if the kids have that today. Uh, they really don't, well, many do. I can't say that all of them don't. Uh, many do, but uh, many don't. Uh, many don't have uh, that sense that they can deal with these things uh, without, you know, on their own, without some kind of either medication support or parental support. Mm-hmm. But I want to get back a little bit to, to the causation. Yeah. Um, I came up with a, a, an idea many years ago, which I call pseudo-independent dependency. Uh, you'll hear about these little children of eight or nine. Oh, isn't that cute? Look how independent he or she is. And the answer is no, it's not cute. Because this is a concept that we are talking about. The child does not feel that he could really count on the parents to understand his needs and be sympathetic to his needs. Uh, you'll have to excuse the political correctness. I'm still in the grammatical area, era when his referred to both genders. Sure. But uh, this, this does not allow the child to develop a confidence in people. And so anytime uh, the, he has a problem, uh, there is a desire to run to some place that will relieve the anxiety, the stress, the depression. Now, running to the drugs provides three things. One, it provides the drug relief. Two, it provides a group of people who don't make any demands on them. Uh, All the demand is take drugs, and very often uh, with girls, have sex. Uh, And the third thing it does is it allows them to focus on something other than what's causing the anxiety. How am I going to score my next uh, my next dose? How am I going to get it? Where am I going to get it? So the mind is focused and obsessed with getting drugs. Not I'm not doing well at school. And uh, the child develops this independent appearance because there's nobody to really lean on when he's scared. So mm-hmm. he appears independent, but is really very dependent because uh Children are dependent. They need parental support. And how does that relate? So then you're saying since they don't learn to rely on people, they turn to rely on either themselves or substances? A group who makes no demands on them. Gotcha. Gotcha. So... So what's a parent to do? We, we, you know, we've identified like kind of what are some of these things that lead people to these choices? 
what's your best advice for parents today? Uh, should I quote my dad, who was a child psychologist yes, and a school principal and the world's greatest cynic? He <laughs> okay. said, if you really love children, you don't have them. Because having a child is simply the most selfish act people can do. You and I were not consulted prior to birth as we want, uh, if we want to be brought into this anxiety-ridden, depression-ridden uh, world that we live in. Stress, uh, with all its stress, with all its trauma, and everything else that goes with life. But once you do have that child, his other favorite quote is, in raising children, it's the first 75 years that are most difficult. <laughs> Which means once you have the child, the child does not owe you. You owe the child. You have brought that child into the world without any consultation. And you owe the child to be a good parent, not necessarily a nice parent. A nice parent is the mother who made the posters for the kids. Uh, a good parent is the mother who insisted that the child make his own poster. <coughs> and this is brought up again in the book uh, that Dr. Morse and I wrote. So about the idea of the differentiation between a good parent and a nice parent. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes a lot of a sense. Cause I know that some of the parents that are doing these things, it's not that they're not nice people. You know, I think they're well-intentioned, but you know, they're result... well-intentioned. Pardon me. They are well-intentioned. What, what paves the road to hell? Yeah. Good intentions. <laughs> Yeah. So let's yeah. say you suspect your kid has a problem. Okay. So you said there's, you know, they're sleepy. They're maybe not, not doing the things they're supposed to do. What are the next steps? First of all, the child. Let's sit down and talk and see what's bothering him. Not are you using drugs, but is there something bothering you? Having trouble in school, having trouble with friends. Are you being, uh, tormented and bullied uh, by people? Are you being tormented and bullied uh, over the internet? Uh, what, is there something that is going on? So you don't approach uh, the drug situation. You approach the problem situation. Okay. Then you look for symptoms. And uh, <clears throat> as, I, as I said before, opiates do not create a high. They create a down. They create, they create going on the nod. Okay. Unlike Drugs like dexedrine or Ritalin or uh, amphetamines, any of the amphetamines, meth, uh, which causes a, uh, an excitement, a, an agitation, an uh, inability to sleep. Uh, cocaine, another one of the uppers, as we call them. But, uh, you, <coughs> but you look for the, the apathy, you look for the withdrawal, uh, you look for the physical symptoms, and you talk about something bothering you. If the child, and more likely will, uh, will not tell you there is, uh, you begin to say, all right, I think there's something bothering you, even though you're not telling me. Uh, maybe you can talk to somebody who is not a parent. Uh, and the child, of course, will say, I don't want to. Right. I don't want to talk to anybody. That's the next reaction. And uh, the, the way I have had uh, resistant youngsters brought in uh, by the parents, is they tell the child, look, you know, you can talk to this guy or not. You can have an ally in this world or not. Uh, 
But if you want me to continue, uh, you know, supporting you and uh, giving you money where I don't trust that the money isn't going for drugs, uh, then you will talk to the, then you will talk to this person. Mm. And if if it's a good therapist, he's going to listen, not not condemn, not say don't use drugs. They know they're not supposed to use drugs. Sure. Uh, one of the things that I always uh, get a kick out of is the ironies in life. So many of my young uh, drug users of all kinds of drugs said, I really love those drug courses in school uh, because I learned what drugs to use and what to expect from them. <laughs> wow. So people, you know, uh, think they're teaching their children, the children something. They are. They're teaching their children how to use drugs. Uh, it's more that you have to talk about it, dealing with problems, dealing with stress, dealing with the fact that, uh, yes, you can deal with it. Uh, most of the way I've been successful with treating drug users and addicts of all kinds is to build up their strengths, uh, to point out to them what they have and how they can deal. Uh, they're very fortunate in some ways coming to me. I've got so many failures behind me. So many mistakes I've made in life that I pointed out to them. And I say, gee, doc, if you could make it, I guess I can. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was never a goody two-shoes. And as I say to my uh, young patients who uh, whose parents uh, have a tracker, a GPS tracker on their phone, I said, in my day, my parents tried that. I'd find the first pickup truck going to California and throw my phone in it. Oh. Yeah. I don't want my parents to know where I was. I survived. I think that that's a big help to the youngsters I treat. I survived. Uh, and uh, I think that what I teach them is you make mistakes, you correct your mistakes. Nobody can go correct, uh, you know, correct, uh, mistake free in life. Right. But that's why they put pencils on erasers so you can sure. correct the mistake. Life is rarely written in ink, it's usually written in pencil. Uh, and this is what the parent has got to point out to the child, you know, that, all right, you're dealing with this. You're dealing with something. Right. If you share it with me and not talk about drugs, not even mention the word drug gotcha. uh, at first. Uh, just to mention, you know, you've got, you've got an ally with me and everybody needs an ally. And uh, I think that that's the way a parent has got to approach a child who they at least suspect. And one of the other uh, clues of the drug use is what I said before. Some of their valuables are disappearing. Mm -hmm. If they can, don't be so quick to blame the maid or somebody else or somebody breaking in. Look to the uh, possibility of a child uh, being on drugs. Sure. Can you? Is it possible for a child to be on drugs and and perform in sports and perform in school? I mean, you know, it's. I think. Most of us have the perception that, oh, you know, they're really messing up their lives. It's a big disaster. So there's big red flags everywhere. You know, are there always big red flags? No. Uh, the, the, it depends on the quantity. It depends on the drug that uh, the person is using. Uh, it really does to great degree depend on the quantity. Uh, I had one man in therapy who uh, held a full-time job got his master's in architecture in the evenings, and before he went to sleep, smoked half a joint. Now, did that interfere with his functioning? No. 
Uh, not at all. In fact, it improved his functioning. Many years ago, I had a young man who was using marijuana every day. He was maintaining a B average in high school. The, when he got caught by the cops, so in the old days when it was illegal, uh, and he had to give the marijuana up, his grades dropped from a B to a C because the anxiety level was greater. So we uh, we cannot judge by that. Cocaine will very often improve a person's performance. So, I mean, no, you cannot use that as a sole criteria. Good. I mean, these are these are important things. I think a lot of a lot of us, you know, moms who don't have a lot of experience with this, you know, jump to the conclusion that, oh, well, you know, if my kid is this, then therefore everything's fine. All right. That's not a good conclusion. No, <laughs> it really isn't. Not a good but, but more often than not, it does diminish functioning. Sure. Far more often than not, it does diminish functioning. But for, you can't parents, use that as a. Oh, go ahead. You go. For parents who have, you know, you know, some parents don't have the greatest relationship with their kids. They might work a lot. They might not talk over dinner or even have dinner together. For parents that are wanting to open a door with their kid, maybe the door's never been opened in communication. You know, where do you start? Well, that's such an individual thing. It's really hard to uh, generalize. I think that most of it is you just sit down with the kid and talk about yourself. Talk about your work. Talk about your day. Don't say, how was your day in school? Uh, because a lot of these kids are what I say, having uh, uh, had the experience with so many, are in the month stage of development, which I call the month stage. How was school today? <laughs> Do you see any of your friends? <laughs> Do you have any homework? <laughs> so I just decided that's the month stage of development. But talk about yourself. Tell them about your day. Tell them about how you spent it. Tell them about your work. Take them to work. Let them see what you do outside of the house. Uh, I think every child should go to work at, at least once a year with a, a parent who works. Gotcha. Now, I see our time is running a little is, short. I just wanted you uh, to I, not only give your best piece of advice, you know, if you were going to leave the planet tomorrow, what would you want every parent to know? And then tell us where to find out more about you and where to get your books. Well, uh, right now I am uh, not taking any patients because I'm in retirement. I'm going to be 82 years old next month. And uh, I think it's time to be... <laughs> I hope the audience knows what that means out there in California. <laughs> uh, There's six of us, yes. <laughs> anyway, uh, I wanted to talk about the optimum, uh, the therapeutic optimum for opiate addiction. Yes. Because that's what we're talking about is opium. Okay. Uh, the best therapeutic reg uh, regimen, if you find that your child is addicted to any of the opiates, Oxy, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Valium, Percocets, uh, heroin, any of them, uh, is a residential treatment program together with individual or group psychotherapy. Uh, and that has to be very personal psychotherapy. When I was the psychiatry, uh, psychiatric consultant at the drug program in Manhasset back in the 70s, I ran a group where everything remained in the group. If people found out that, uh, if the, group, if the uh, therapists found out that 
uh, somebody was using drugs, uh, there would be what they called object lessons. But if they talked about it in the group, it never got out of left the group. Gotcha. So it gives the kids a chance to talk about when they may go to a drug, what motivated them that day, what was the stimulus uh, that did it. So that kind of individual or group psychotherapy, along with a residential treatment program, followed by a day program, finally, if the parental home is not dysfunctional, uh, or a halfway house if it is, uh, it's a gradual process. And along with that, there should be a continuation of the psychotherapy, which as most people know, unfortunately, is a slow process in general, and even more so uh, for addiction. But as the ideal is frequently unavailable, a combination of one or two therapies, uh, preferably two therapies, is still essential. Uh, one alone, whether you're talking about alcoholism with AA, where you're talking about uh, treatment programs for opiates, uh, the duality of uh, psychotherapy and AA or the pro uh, residential program is essential. Gotcha. I've treated many AA people, uh, and uh, we work very well together, AA. I'm a strong believer in it. Uh, it works well along with therapy. Terrific. Terrific. Dr. Moses, where can we find your books? Uh, Barnes & Noble on Amazon. Uh, Barnes & Noble has it. Uh, it's amazing, confident, uh, uh, self-confident, independent kids. Uh, Dr. Wendy Morse and Dr. Donald Moses. Terrific. My co-author, Wendy Morse, is the expert from three to... 11, and I'm the expert from 11 on upwards. Well, but terrific. she gets them right at the time when major changes and major improvements can be made. Terrific. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for your experience, your expertise, for helping all of us young parents out there and for making yourself available today. And have a happy, happy birthday coming up. Oh, thank you. How can one have a happy birthday at 82? You can. My dad had one at 86 recently, and it was terrific. 82 is like the new 40. I wish. <laughs> All right, we'll be back again next week. Okay. Thanks for being with us today on Motherhood Talk Radio, starring Sandra Beck. Join us again. We've got something you won't want to miss. Motherhood Talk Radio is a production of Beck Multimedia.